Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood-adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a consummate Hollywood mover and shaker over a career spanning the entire second half of the 20th century and beyond, he rose from a talent agency male boy to the president and CEO of 20th Century Fox Television with numerous stops in between. Together with his grandson, Nick, he has chronicled his colorful career in the new memoir, You Can't Fall Off the Floor and Other Lessons from a Life in Hollywood. Hello and welcome, Harris Kettleman. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, if half of this book is true, you've led a very amazing life. It's all true. <laughs> Truth's better than fiction. I, I guess it, it is. It's interesting. Yeah, um, that's funny. There's lots of things that have really happened. As somebody who's you know been involved with greenlighting projects and you know the creative process in general, there are lots and lots of things that really happen that if you saw it in a script, you'd say, throw it out. That would never. If if you had ever seen a script where um, the Spanish Navy was chasing after a yacht because someone had just abducted his ex-girlfriend who's now a princess and firing at them, you would say, that's ridiculous. I would say that's ridiculous, but when it happened, when that first cannonball <laughs> went across the bow of Kirk Corrin's yacht, I was frightened. I bet you were. Uh, the book made it seem you took a little bit of damage. Not not too much. The boat, just a bit. Okay, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's that's all in a day's work. Um, you are um, the reason that uh, my family and the rest of America enjoyed six seasons of Mr. Belvedere. Really? <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank Maybe you. Maybe not the shining achievement of your of your career, but you're the you are the guy. Well, it was an experience, but you know, I was taught my first position when I worked for Lou Wasserman, and it was the president of MCA. Don't give up, mm -hmm. you know. If you believe in something, go forward. And as my former associate, Barry Diller, once referred to me, you have tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. So I kept moving along. And there you were. It was the, uh, I feel like next to ALF, there was the classic 80s thing of there's typical nuclear family plus, and you fill in the blank. Exactly. Alien, it, alien was hard to top. <laughs> Unnecessary uh, proper English butler in Pittsburgh, I think, ran a close second. Exactly. So um, the book, when I started reading, I really enjoyed the work both of you did on this, both writing and living it. Um, I expected something a little bit glossier, I guess something a little bit more Hollywood, and I was pleased to find that it was a bit, a bit grittier than that. I've never encountered the phrase piss elegant in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> I think Nick Fraze created that one. I'll give Nick the credit for that. So the book begins the the kind of the little uh, teaser to catch your attention begins with your uh, very junior agent. I think at the time, and you witness another more senior agent being shot in the in the crotch by a scorned husband. That's correct. At that point in your career, did you? expect that things like that might be part of your rise or because it seemed like you you were raised in a world that prepared you for um uh, a certain criminal flavor to business well my father was a parking lot attendant my mother was a legal secretary secretary but my uncle 
was formerly a bookmaker. He didn't make novels. He was a bookmaker who took bets on horses, snails crawling up mirrors, anything you want, he'd take a bet on. And he went on to be the owner of a very successful hotel casino in Las Vegas called the Rancho Vegas, which was subsequently burned down by the mafia. <laughs> so, yes, I had a good background. You were ready for that for that sort of thing. Hollywood's just a funny business, huh? There's no other business really like it. Uh, you point out that you don't need a degree to get into it, so it's it's always just going to favor somebody who has a bit of a Wild West leaning to the way that they're able to do business and like doing business. I think in the in the beginning, Hollywood was really created by people from the garment business, you know, who came out here and uh, like Jack Warner and Sam Goldwyn, L.B. Mayer, far before me. But what it did, it also bred nepotism. And my first experience with nepotism was I was at MCA and the founder, Jules Stein, uh, passed not a law, but it was a rule in the company that you couldn't hire relatives. And I think that sort of made it possible for new people coming in the industry who didn't have fathers who had connections at studios or, you know, they did the catering. You got there on your own. And if, you know, separating the wheat from the chafe, you know, you make it, you make it. But- yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Lou Wasserman. Uh, there was an anecdote very early in the book. I mean, it's just crazy to me. He once berated you because you were wearing a bow tie at the office on a weekend. Well, this is a bygone era we're talking about. You have to about. understand. In the beginning, when I started MCA, the studios were open on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. They shot Monday through Saturday. Oh, I see. Closed on Sunday. So, therefore, MCA, being a theatrical agency, stayed open on Saturdays. So, it was Saturday. I was coming into the, to the office. You never came in without a tie. But at this time, I came in with a blue blazer and gray slacks. The normal dress at MCA was a blue suit or black suit and a black tie. Mm -hmm. I took the liberty of coming in that day in a blue blazer with gray slacks and a bow tie. Rebel. Lou Wasserman saw me and he said, let me explain something to you. The only person who wears a bow tie in the MCA headquarters is Frank Sinatra. Go to Carolyn Company, which is the local store, and get a black knit tie. I was wondering, reading that, so you describe a world in MCA, your early days there where somebody can easily be fired for, you know, coming back with the wrong cup of coffee. Absolutely. And I feel like I even saw a little bit of the tail end of that. I went to a, a, a prep high school and they told us, they said, we've loosened up nowadays, but our opening speech used to be, look to your left, look to your right. One of you isn't going to be here in four years. Same thing at MCA. Okay. And that, so that was the way that the world operated. I wonder, what do you think has been lost in that sort of way of doing business going away, and if anything, what has been gained? In the beginning, not just MCA, but it was William Morris and famous artists and a couple of smaller agencies, you served an apprenticeship. You didn't get there. And today's uh, youth, young people, want to, they want instant gratification. They want to be president immediately. And when you're working in the mailroom, you learn all the names of all the key people at the networks and at the studios as you progress to work on a desk. Working on a desk is you're put with a senior agent and you answer his phones. And in those days, you listen to all his calls. You'd have earphones. The reason being is a senior agent would maybe get 50 to 100 calls. But what I would do when I was, well, I never served on the mailroom because I jumped ahead to Lou Wasserman's 
supposedly a system, but really his driver. Yes. But you like to drink. Yeah, you listen to calls <laughs> and you remind your boss. By the way, uh, Clark Gable said to meet him at Chasen's. Uh, Grace Kelly said, so you'd make notes and you'd hand them to your boss after the phone call ended. This is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. That you'd be on a decimate for two years. And then you were promoted to a junior agent. Doesn't happen anymore. The young people want to be, I want to handle, uh, you know, the star of today. I, I want to be there now. I want, I want to be successful. But there's no apprenticeship, mm-hmm. bottom line. Yeah. And that's what's missing today, I think. So people, you think, probably end up lacking fundamentals. Yeah. That have to be. So you Definitely. Mentioned, you mentioned casually, you know, Clark Gable uh, is, is a name that just falls out of your mouth pretty easily. There's so many names come up in the, in the course of this book. First of all, as I think that Cary Grant is the greatest movie star and the greatest movie actor who ever lived. That's my personal opinion. As somebody who's just been in the same room as him, I'm just curious, what was your read on him as a human being? Well, I was not assigned to Cary Grant, but mm-hmm. Lou Wasserman had a select clients within our agency, and we had hundreds of clients because we also represented a bands, and every band member was a client. But Cary Grant, I had the experience of going with Lou, and we went to a restaurant, which at the time was very famous here in Los Angeles, called Chasen's. It's now Bristol Farms. Shows you what <laughs> it's the longevity of restaurants in Los it's Angeles. It's a grocery store, yeah. But we were sitting having dinner with Cary Grant and to use my grandson's phrase, he was piss elegant. Uh-huh. I mean, not a hair was out of place. His suit was immaculate. And somebody came over to our table, and they said, Mr. Grant, could I have your autograph? And he looked up. He says, you know I'm dining. And this person came back. I paid, I think it was $2 then to see your movie. <laughs> Carrie reached in his pocket, took out two $1 bills, said, now we're even. Please go away. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, in the space of uh, about five pages, I think we get uh, you having interactions, memorable interactions with Marlon Brando, Jackie Gleason, Clark Gable, Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, Martin and Lewis. That was your your fray, among many others too. Right. I mean, I could. Yeah. 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 There's a liaison with Kim Basinger. Uh, Ronald Reagan calls to thank you for a small favor after he's elected president. The list does go on and on. Did it? Did you? Do you get used to that, or did it always feel sort of surreal to be in that mix? It was mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a kid who didn't have a suit. I had a Leatherman sweater and cords and tennis shoes, and all of a sudden, be mixing with these kind of peoples. People, I was always amazed. I mean, you know, I never expected to be there. Yeah. I, you know, as I say in my book, my dad said to me, "Get a job at Sears Roebuck." And in 20 years, you'll retire with a pension. Well, I didn't see myself selling refrigerators or washing machines and dryers, mm-hmm. but it was an experience. And all these people, you know, I was con- constantly amazed at what they would do and say. And I would have to, a lot of times, get them out of trouble that they got themselves in. That's part of the job of being an agent. Right. You mentioned that uh, movie stars in your experience are uh, bonkers is the word that you used. I wonder if, or that Nick used. I, um, I wonder if, do you feel that uh, there's something about someone who becomes a movie star that that is part of their essential nature, or do you think that they become victims of their own success and become bonkers? That's that's a, a tough question. You know, when I 
meet young people, friends of mine, they say, we give my son or daughter guidance. They want to be an actor or an actress. And I say, okay, the first thing is dial up on your television set chorus line and look at it. And if you can't handle rejection, get a job at Sears Roebuck selling some refrigerators because that's the key. They have to be able to handle that. Mm -hmm. And that's the advice I give everyone who wants to be in the entertainment business. I had a, I liked handling actors, but I loved handling writers. And that's part of the path I followed when I became president of MGM and president of Fox. I signed writers because I think writers make stars in television. Mm -hmm. In features, stars make the the shows, movies move. That's right. But in television, if the show's not right, people have remote control in their hand and they just flip off. That's right. So I built my career courting writers to come to MGM, to come to Fox. And even uh, when I was running Goodson Taubman, when I, Richard Boone, I talked to him to doing a television show and I, I courted Clifford Odets to be the head writer, mm-hmm. who's a world famous writer. Sure. Um, and, and you make the excellent point that the writers are essentially the only people who can make something out of nothing. Exactly. But you can't just put a star in front of a camera and, and you're a salesperson sort of essentially, but you can't sell something. I mean, a, a salesman can sell anybody anything, but of, of course you'd prefer to be selling something of value. Exactly. And they're the ones who create the value. Um, you say that when you're on the business side of entertainment, as, as you were, um, screwing people over is a primary part of your job description. Really? Well, <laughs> at one point, I, I don't think I ever screwed people over. Okay. I think that, you know, I've always told them straight. I mean, one of the most difficult jobs mm-hmm. I had, more so at Fox, because we had a lot more shows on the air than I had on it at MGM, is when a show's canceled, having to walk down, telling the actors, so they're going to move on. They'll get another job. They'll, they can always do a little theater. But telling the crew, the people livelihood depends on that show is the most difficult thing of telling to people because they live by it, you know, and a lot of people in the industry live hand to mouth, you know, and uh, they got to get another gig real fast. And it doesn't happen if a show gets canceled in the middle of the season. So the actors will do okay. The grips, the uh, worker bees, as I call them, they're not going to do okay. And I can't, even on the president of the studio, I can't find another job for them because we don't have a show coming on. A lot of times we get a show on in mid-season. We say, we'll move you over there. But that's, I think that's the most difficult part of my job is saying, you're canceled. Okay. Um, well, that, it's it's interesting. I feel like you have, I can. I felt from the book and I feel like talking to you that you have a lot of humanity to you and that's not something that we always associate in the popular imagination in the popular culture with people who run studios or produce movies and stuff like that i i couldn't help but wonder you know i'm thinking about i don't know how much how well you remember like valley of the dolls and stuff like that where these you know there's this uh executive with the starlet and he's like leave her for me and it's 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 repellent you know and and i think we just sort of accept that wisdom that these are amoral, immoral people running the business side of Hollywood. In your experience, I mean, I know this is a huge blanket question, but what? 
how many other people do you think got a bad rap and were more human and more understanding to the people who work for them like you were and how much of that stereotype of the Hollywood mogul really holds weight? I don't think it's overplayed. I think there's been a lot of abuses in our industry. Uh, a lot of people took advantage of people because of their positions. And I never followed that. You know, my attitude was just easy to be nice. Mm -hmm. You know, walk is, in my one year at UCLA, uh, I remember one of my teachers quoting Teddy Roosevelt, the former president of the United States, who said, walk softly and carry a big sick. It's just as easy to walk softly. You don't have to beat people up, especially mm -hmm. when you're on top. And if you look at some of the people in our industry who are on top and they lose their jobs, they're unemployable because people remember how they were abused by these executives. And they should remain nameless, but I'm sure uh, your listeners know who I'm referring to. Sure, you can connect the dots. Right. Um, the proof ultimately is in the pudding. Um, it seems like you did and for fairly obvious reasons to most people, I think, enjoy the the power of, you know, of, of rising to the top, being at the top, all things being equal, would prefer a position where you did feel like you had more power. Power's great. Okay, well, that's my question. I know Power's this is, great. This is incredibly no, naive. Take... I don't feel, I'm not trying to like humble brag, I don't feel so attracted to power. I've never been able to understand. I, I get it. I get okay, it. But what is so intoxicating about power? Let okay, me tell you what power does for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when I was a Fox... A reporter's interviewing me. He said, you know, you're the president of Fox Television. Uh, do you like having the limousines in New York? And the uh, Fox had a corporate apartment at the Sheridan Netherlands Hotel. Uh, do you like that? I said, well, I usually walk around uh, New York. I don't take limousines unless from the airport to the hotel. And as far as the hotel, stay at the Sheridan Netherlands apartment, that was fine. But I could stay at any hotel. What I loved the most was the jet. <laughs> Having the use of the private plane is mind-boggling. And the other thing is, when my assistant would call for a reservation at a restaurant, I always got the great table because I'm the president of Fox. Uh -huh. And when you're not the president of Fox, I tell the story that this one, I was president of MGM. There's a restaurant in New York called 21. And the downstairs of 21 is sort of parceled off into three sections. The first sections were reserved for the president of, of RCA, which is, which is now NBC, which is no longer NBC, <laughs> and, and the president of General Motors. And this, right around the corner from the first room, there's a section reserved for people in the entertainment, like the president of CBS, et cetera. And I always got in the second room. When I resigned from MGM, to go to Columbia as a producer of my own company, making three times the money I was making at MGM, I went to 21. They put me in the fourth room. And I said to the man, Jerry Burns, who's the co-owner of 21, I said, what happened? He said, you're not the president of MGM anymore. So what's, what's a stronger emotion, the good feeling of getting into that room or the bad feeling of going back and finding out that you're no longer welcome in that room? I was welcome. Uh-huh. But I got even. Yeah. So as Lou Wasserman always said, don't get mad, get even. Right. And I was walking into, uh, I was at Columbia, and I was going in with Alan Hirschfeld, who was the president of Columbia at the time, and he came from a big uh, company called Allen Company, which is a gigantic underwriting uh, stock company. And we walked 
he said, let's go to 21 for dinner. I said, I'm not going to 21. He said, why not? I told him the story. He picks up the phone and calls Jerry Burns. And Jerry says, well, next dinner's on us. I said, I don't need free dinners. I said, why didn't you see people who've been loyal to his restaurant and see them and treat them in the right way? It didn't get through, but I never went back to 21. Uh, you mentioned that you know, you started in, in the mailroom and there were, I think there were, you know, what it was, 10 other people, 12 other people who were there, or 10 or 12 total, and some of them got the job at the end of the summer, and I'm assuming some of them didn't even end up in the entertainment industry. What do you think ultimately set you apart from all the other people that you started off with that allowed you to get where you got? Well, when I was in the mailroom at MCA, uh, there were some really major heavy hitters. There was Jerry Parencio, who ended up to become a billionaire, and... Uh, 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 owned Telemundo, which is the Spanish uh, network, and uh, Pierre Cosset, who produced the Grammys and the Academy Awards, and and they were all really successful people. So a lot of it's luck. My luck was that every morning when I came to work, Lou Wasserman, the president's assistant, <clears throat> a lady named Shirley Kahn, would say, could you stop at Nate Nell's? Nate Nell's the local delicatessen about three blocks from the MCA headquarters and pick me up a bagel and cream cheese. I said, sure. Three weeks later, Shirley Kahn called me up to her office and said, would you like to be Lou Wasserman's assistant? And my quote was, who do I have to kill? That's to get out of the mailroom. Sure. And so now... Was it luck? You bet. Was she could have signaled out anybody else to go get that bagel and cream cheese. So it's the right time, right place, but treating people with respect. And I've always treated people with respect. I try to because, you know, today's office boy can be tomorrow's president. Okay. Um, I mean, there are many other people who tell you that nice guys finish last. That's Leo DeRocher. Mm-hmm. And which supposedly uh, didn't even exactly say that. No, but that's I know. But everybody quotes it. He was the manager to, of the Dodgers that's at the right. time. Yeah, the the Brooklyn Dodgers at yeah, the time. Yeah, Brooklyn Dodgers. <laughs> We're both dating ourselves. This <laughs> is going back uh, back a, a little ways. But you you feel like the secret to your success? Because okay, great, that got you started. But to the fact that you were able to hopscotch from one thing to another and and be successful for so long and in so many different ways, can, it just boils down to the way that you treat people. You know what? It's just easy to be nice as be mm-hmm. mean. Why Why be mean? I had a, a comment that happened to me a few months ago. Re, going back to my background, my dad ran parking lots, and I worked for him. Every time I go leave a parking structure and I hand him my ticket and the money, I said, thanks a lot. Have a great day. And I remember a lady I was with at the time said, why are you like that? I said, because I was a parking attendant. How difficult is it to say, have a nice day? They're sitting in that cubicle making maybe $15 an hour, our minimum wage now. Mm. There, by the grace of God, go I. Fair enough. Um, If I learn one practical lesson from this book, it's that no one lies when they're yelling. Well, that's the Howard Hughes story. (laughs) For those of your listeners, Howard Hughes is... uh, legendary person. Sure. Well, Leonardo DiCaprio reintroduced him to a whole generation of people. And Howard Hughes was in a number of uh, airplane crashes, you know, flying them himself. One in Beverly Hills, in fact. Whereabouts in Beverly Hills? Where was It was on uh, North Linden Drive in Beverly Hills. (laughs) And it's plain, he was was always romancing. There's a famous story. There's a 
golf course here in town called the Bel Air Country Club, and he's romancing uh, Catherine Hepburn. Mm, He landed his plane on the 8th fairway. Didn't make a big hit with the members of Bel Air, but he's a billionaire then. He didn't care. Mm -hmm. And uh, But in the accident in Linden, he lost partial hearing. So Lou Wasserman represented Jane Russell. Howard Hughes produced a movie with Jane Russell called The Outlaw, and they displayed her breasts quite well in the movie. In fact, (laughs) they didn't have ratings then, but if they did, he would add an X. I see. And for cleavage. Lou Wasserman, my boss, and I went to Howard Hughes's office, which happened to be on Romaine, which is right where we're sitting now. <laughs> it was a, it was painted green. I mean, really green. And we walked in and, and we're negotiating. And Howard Hughes said, what did you say, Lou? What did you say? Now, Wasserman's yelling louder. She deserves this. She deserves that. We left the office. And by the way, Lou Wasserman got her a, a contract, which paid her for 10 years. And remember, this is in the 50s. She was getting 100000 a year for 10 years. That was, today, that would be $10 million. Sure. And Wasserman said to me, he says, you know, I was yelling. And if you realize, you can't lie when you yell. And if you stop and think about it, you can't. You can't because you're, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And it was, a, it was an interesting lesson. Yeah. And he said, Hughes isn't as deaf as he says he is, but he knew. And I knew what he was doing. That's funny. I mean, not I, meaning Lou Wasserman. Was, I didn't know. Right, 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 right. Well, yeah, I guess it does uh, scrape away a lot of the artifice when you just have to get down Indeed to the, it does. the nuts and bolts of uh, communication. I, you were even skeptical about just how uh, insane he may or may not have been, Howard Hughes, ultimately? About it, when he supposedly lost his marbles at the end, Howard Hughes. You well, he he became really weird. Yeah. Uh, in my book, I I tell that uh, there was a famous football player named Glenn Davis, and he played for West Point, and his partner was Glenn uh, Blanchard, and Glenn Davis and Doc Blanchard, and Glenn Davis had a Big Army career, but he's an All-American football player, and he married an actress named Terry Moore, and she was a like a fairly well-known actress in those days. And Howard Hughes seduced her, and Glenn Davis heard about her, heard about it, and uh, Glenn Davis really beat the crap out of Howard Hughes, and Hughes called Wasserman. He said, "I want him out of the business, you know. I want," and Wasserman said, "He's an Army hero, Howard." He performed in Korea. He, I'm not doing any of the kind. Well, I won't do business with you. And Howard Hughes owned RKO. I won't do business with you. From RKO, I'll never use an MCA client. And Wasserman said, fine with me, and hung up. They used MCA clients because they had to. That's funny, yeah. It seems like there's quite a lot of idle, you'll never, you'll never this again, or I'll never with oh, yeah, you yeah. again. Well, there's a... F- certain agent in this town who said to a very famous writer, my foot soldiers will hunt you down on Wilshire Boulevard. What that meant, I don't know. But, you know, if you make, you draw a line in the sand, you better be prepared to back it up. And unfortunately, business ultimately makes strange bedfellows and it's a pretty small town and sooner or later. Exactly. 
That's uh, that's um, it, the story you were just telling about uh, Howard Hughes reminded me of something somewhat similar. You uh, one time found yourself making the acquaintance of a, a woman in I think San Diego area that you later found La out Costa was, Country Club was also the acquaintance of uh, a pretty high-ranking mob boss. Uh, the owner of the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> it sounds like, I feel like there's almost a whole other book that could have been written and perhaps should not be written about, this is essentially about the business, but it sounds like you had a lot of fun at the same time. I had a lot of fun. You know, I say in the book, I was really successful in my careers. My success with, with ladies wasn't successful because unfortunately I had fleeting marriages Mm -hmm. but when you're in the business you have to make a decision a a great story was when Lou Wasserman decided to transfer me to New York to head up the uh, uh, television division packaging and I just gotten married and I said you know I just got married and I'll have to discuss it with Carol who was my first wife and Wasserman turned to me says your mistress is MCA dump your wife and that was the philosophy. I didn't dump her, and she moved, and all that. But yeah. that was it. I mean, you you had you had to dedicate yourself to it. It's twenty four seven. And I guess not all that much changed because there's a similar set of circumstances when you need to go to China on behalf of Rupert Murdoch. Your personal life again has to take a back seat for that. My right? youngest son was getting married, <laughs> and and I, I was called in, and Rupert said, uh, "You're leaving a week from." Uh, uh, Friday for New for uh Beijing. Reason being, Hong Kong was still uh, a British entity, and China had made a deal to take over Hong Kong. Yeah, it was the hundred year agreement or whatever. Right, it was, right. And we own not we, but News Corp, who owned Fox, owned a newspaper in Hong Kong called the South China Morning Post which was a huge moneymaker for the company because it's the only English-speaking newspaper in all of Asia. And we were told to go there to make nice-nice with the Chinese so they wouldn't annex the newspaper. And I said to Rupert, I said, my son's getting married uh, Saturday in Santa Barbara. I said, I can't go. He said, well, video it for you. I said, I'm not going. He said, you mean that? I said, I'm not going. Because I said, it's my youngest son, and I'm going to be at the wedding. So they changed the schedule, and they took the Fox jet to Beijing, which is another interesting side story. Uh, Not to Beijing. They took the Fox jet to Hong Kong, and when we all gathered there, the Chinese government wouldn't let us take the Fox jet into Beijing. They wouldn't let us invade Chinese airspace, you know, like we had bombs and, you know, whatever right but you had, you had champagne uh, flutes so they changed it they all went on the fox jet the fox executive and i went on singapore airlines monday morning guess what i still did the deal didn't change life but sometimes you have to stand your ground would rupert have fired me over no he wouldn't have he was upset with me but we did it and we got the job done and it was an interesting side story which isn't even the book i was in uh, Africa on safari with my girlfriend, and I'd planned it for two years. I'd set aside the time, blocked everything off. I'm in, in Africa, and uh, I get a satellite call, come to London. It's when uh, 
we were, meaning uh, Fox News Corp, were making a deal to buy the National Enquirer from Walter Annenberg and uh, other assets. And I was told, cut my trip, come to London because we need you to negotiate the television side. I said, I'm not leaving. And I pulled the plug on the satellite phone. Now, my companion at the time says, you're going to be fired. They fired me over that, you know, tough luck. Well, when I finally got back and I was called in and uh, the comment was made, you know what you did? I said, we made the deal, didn't we? We got Annenberg's company. So what's the big deal? There's certain time you got to really stand up for your personal life. Unfortunately, in my fleeting marriages, I didn't stand up enough. Okay, there's two different directions I want to go with this. I'm equally interested in both. I'll just pick one. Uh, it, you said out of all of the people you interacted with, all of the different business and entertainment heavyweights, Rupert Murdoch really stood out to you among even the, the others. What was it about him that distinguished him so much in your mind? Well, Rupert Murdoch is, is a, a genius, goes without saying. There's different kinds of geniuses. What sort of genius do you think he possesses? He was a business genius. And I will never forget, we were flying to New York on the Fox jet, Rupert, myself, and some of the executives. And Rupert, News Corp owns a lot of newspapers. They own the New York Post. They own a number of papers in the United Kingdom, London. And he had every newspaper, and he was taking pages out, and he'd write on them and set them aside. And when the plane landed in New York, an assistant met us at the private jet port in New Jersey, and he handed it to him with his comments on each paper of things he wanted liked or wanted changed. I mean, even though he was the president of a giant company called News Corp, every division he paid attention to. And I remember we were sitting in a staff meeting, and I, it was we were doing pilots. For those of your uh, listeners, pilots, when you do a sample of the television show and you take it to New York to sell it to networks. And I said to Rupert, do you want to see these pilots? He said, no, I just want to see the results. That's interesting. That's funny because he's so hands-on. It, it, it suggests that there's something about newspapers that's personally interesting to him in a way that the, the, stuff, the stuff of television Rupert's is father in uh, Australia owned uh, the first newspaper, so everybody jokes that Rupert has you know printer's ink in his veins. Mm-hmm. That's his first love, are the newspapers. And uh, I think that his two sons, well, one of them now is going to be running their private company because News Corp sold out uh, Fox to Disney, that the sons don't have that same love for the printed word right. that he does. Well, it's tough to, <clears throat> if you're of a certain age, it's it's hard to feel that attachment of to, to you know, having ink smudged on your fingers. If you just, well, if remember, you just weren't raised in that world, then what are you I supposed to do? I remember taking a trip with Rupert because we, on the plane, and... Uh, it's when I had a Kindle, mm-hmm. and he said, "I like feeling the paper in my hands." Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I was I was telling somebody this right before we sat down. I'm I'm working on one book and I'm reading yours at the same time, and it was it felt so good to me every every time I got to the point in the evening where I could close the laptop and stop dealing with a word document and start dealing with an actual piece of paper. It's an experience. It's just better. Yeah, it just it's a, is it live or is it memorized? You can't beat the exactly. the, the tactile kind of thing. So, uh. When you say that Rupert Murdoch was that hands-on with the stuff that was in the newspapers, I think people would suspect that 
that's because he had a political bent that he wanted to see reflected. Do you think it was that that he cared about seeing, or do you think it was things that he saw that would make the the writing pop a little bit more and help him sell more newspapers? What do you think ultimately matters to him with newspapers I and, think, and say Fox News? No, well, I relate to Fox News in my book, but yeah. uh, Rupert has an agenda. Mm-hmm. Every you know great person, I mean. Uh, Jack Kennedy had an agenda. Ronald Reagan had an agenda. Uh, our current president, we all know, has an agenda, yes. right or wrong. It seems that way. But uh, uh, I don't think Rupert wants to sway people. He just wants his voice heard. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's been, you know, going back to Hearst. Uh, Trump at one point said Twitter's the best thing ever because it's a newspaper and you don't even have to buy it. Exactly. So. Trump's just another in a long line. He's just taking advantage of the new the new technology. Speaking of Rupert Murdoch and Fox, you were instrumental also in um, the creation of The Simpsons. Well, I didn't create The Simpsons. The Simpsons were created by Matt Granning and Jim Brooks, who mm-hmm. uh, I was convinced to do a television show after being so successful in television with you know, MTM, which is the Mary Tyler Moore Company, and all the successful shows like Taxi, etc. And when he came to Fox, he said, I'm never going to do television anymore. He just won the three Academy Awards for Terms of Endearment. And and uh, we were having lunch, or it was dinner, and it's just after uh, we got the first syndication, Success of Fall Guy, which is a show that uh, we started with Glenn uh, Larson is the executive producer, creator, and Lee Majors. And the check was $45 million. And I said to Jim, look at this. He said, what's that? I said, $45 million to Glenn Larson for Fall Guy. I said, are you kidding? He said, I didn't make $45 million off of terms <laughs> of endearment. So he then created the Tracy Ullman Show. Mm-hmm. In the Tracy Ullman Show, and this is Jim Brooks's genius, he had read all of Matt Groening's, uh uh, uh, animation strips and he, he decided to do The Simpsons in a one minute segment and that was on the Tracy Ullman show. Yes. Jim then came to me and he said I think there's a television series in this and we put together seven one minute episodes out of the Tracy Ullman show and did a presentation and we tested it in uh, Preview House. Preview House is in Hollywood and uh they bring people in, they give them dials, and you turn the dial if you like it, if you don't like it, and it scored higher than MASH. We didn't believe the testing. Yeah. So at the time, the president of uh, CBS was Bob Daly, and CBS tested their shows in Las Vegas because they felt they got a better cross-section of the audience. And we tested it in Las Vegas, got a 96. It was just un- incredible. Yeah, yeah, that was... That was an, an organic thing that was happening everywhere. I was a kid who had a Cool Your Jets Band t-shirt and, and stuff like that. I remember being very excited about the Christmas special and stuff like that. Was this a case of where you personally responded to it enough that you could want to get behind it? Or was it simply a matter of people seem to like this crap? I'm not sure why. No, no. I loved it. Uh-huh. See, I'd go to the Tracy Ullman show tapings every Friday night. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to. I didn't go to tapings of... I'd go to tapings of... New shows, but I would go to Tracy Ullman's show on Friday night just to enjoy it. So uh, it wasn't a question that I was just, well, it's cannon fodder. I love the show, and I love the one-minute segments, 
And uh, when we had the opportunity to sell it, uh, I loved doing it. And I love selling. I mean, that's if you ask me what my expertise is, it's selling my shows and mm-hmm. standing behind them. Like as you referred earlier to Mr. Belvedere, it's a show you couldn't kill with a stick. <laughs> I got it. I went through five different presidents at ABC who all said, I'm going to cancel your show. Get it? I said, yeah, yeah, right. And the same thing where The Simpsons was. I remember showing it uh, to Bob Iger, who at the time, who's now the president of Disney, but at the time was president of just ABC television. And he loved it and said, I want to buy it. And I said, I can't sell it to you because it's a Fox show. If Fox passes, then you can buy it. So what do you think ultimately was the thing that motivated you to get out of bed more in the morning, making a show like The Simpsons or selling a show like The Simpsons? Success. I like to win. I've always liked to win. And one of my former executives uh, who went on to an interesting career, Leslie Moonves, mm-hmm. and went on to Warner Brothers. And we used to play in a weekly poker game, and it was all people in the entertainment business. And at the time, my shows were winning Gold Globe statues. And he said, how do your shows win? So- how did any single out a show I don't want to mention? It wasn't a big hit. How did that show win? And I said, when I leave Fox, I'll give you my secret. And my secret was I invited the members of the Foreign Press Association to brunch to meet the cast of each show. Nobody else did that. They treated them with disdain. Oh, there's a bunch of foreign reporters. I treated them like I wanted to be treated. Yes, I remember when the Golden Globes became a thing that people heard about and then actually started to care about. And I remember hearing some, you know, it's just this handful of people. Like, it's funny that it's almost been elevated to a pre-academy kind of thing at this point, and they're they're not equivalent groups of voters. Not at all. But but you know what? Entertainers go there to be entertained. They go to the Golden Globes, they have liquor on the table, and they drink, <laughs> and they have dinner yeah. and lunch. Not that the Academy Awards is stressful. Golden Globes is fun. Were you ever involved in anything with, uh, were you nominated for anything with an Academy Award? I guess from no. here to eternity, was that? Well, from here to eternity, I sold the book to Buddy Adler. And then when I became a producer at Columbia, I resurrected uh, uh, from here to eternity and sold it to Fred Silverman, who was the president of NBC at the time, as a television show. So, yes, I sold the first book, mm-hmm. even though my superior at MCA <clears throat> said, this is crap. We don't need another war book. Throw it in the slush pile. The slush pile was where you put manuscripts that didn't sell. And, I mean, do, do you consider that luck that you came across that? Or cause it seems to me that you had a very discerning—it seems that you were born blessed with very good taste for well, things that could sell and things that people would respond to. I think I have—and this might sound really contrite. I think I have the average man's sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not a feat. Uh, I didn't go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale, nothing against them. But I think, and this really, I hope your listeners will bear with me. I think I have the common man's touch where what appeals to me seemed to work out as an appeal to them. It's like one of the first shows that uh, my former partner, Columbia, Harv Bennett, who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, we did was called The American Girls. And what I did is I took two really great-looking girls, copying from Aaron Spelling, who always put beautiful women in his shows, and I did a show called The American Girls, about two women, like 60 Minutes, who were traveling as investigator reporters. So now, what did I have? I had two really great-looking women, 
I had a subject that they're investigating, you know, crimes and all that. And it's like a 60 Minutes type of show. So I merged all three together. Mm-hmm. And the show, it sort of worked. It didn't work great because the writing stunk, <laughs> to be blunt. But that was, you know, something I took. But And then I took another show, you know, a uh, with Andy Griffith called Salvage, and that lasted four years on ABC. And it was a story of, of a junk man who built a rocket ship and goes to the moon to salvage all the uh, material our people left on the moon when they got there. And it was that story, and it worked. And the people liked it, and it stayed on ABC. And we were against 60 Minutes. We were on 7 o'clock on ABC on Sunday nights, and we still did a respectable rate. We didn't outrate 60 Minutes. We did a good enough rating that ABC kept us on the air. Well, they were always cheating all those years, ABC, with 60 Minutes, because they knew darn well the football game wasn't going to end on time. And they would say, stay tuned for 60 Minutes starting at 7 or whatever it was. And they knew that it would start at 7.16. And when that was over, you'd flip to the other channel, and they'd be in the middle of a show, so you'd have no choice but to go back. Exactly. The other show's been on for 15 minutes. You're not going to walk in in the middle of it. Exactly. So what did you do? You stay with 60 Minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it holds true today. Uh I am familiar with with that trick. How how do you think that um, the television business, you know, entertainment business, how do you think it's different nowadays than it was when, you know, you were having all these experiences we've been talking about? And, and what things do you think are the same? What things do you think are eternal? When I was starting, uh, all the studios were owned, not owned, but were run by individuals. They're all run by corporations now. Mm. And there's no familiarity it's when i was doing you could really fly by the seat of your pants today it's it's the corporation can you do this let's not offend this one you know let's do that let's oh we can't do that and when i was doing it you you only had one person it's the board of directors of fox or mgm or universal now it's the board of directors of you know uh Comcast is the board of directors of this company. So you got to be careful you don't offend. We did things that offended. Not offensive, but Mm -hmm. we offended. What do you you mean by that? What's an example of that, do you think? Well, we would do do shows that weren't, you know, really popular uh, in the corporate world, but the average Joe wanted to watch those kind of shows. And today you can't do that. You're censored. You really are. Nobody wants to offend. If you're selling, if you're Procter and Gamble and you're selling Head and Shoulders shampoo, uh, you don't want to offend your buyers of that shampoo. So you, 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 it's different. It just it's yeah. no fun anymore. My well, attitude. I hear my <laughs> contemporary. I mean, uh, when I left Fox, my uh, uh, he was my head of business affairs. Business affairs for your listeners are the people who negotiate all the terms with. Uh, studios, actors, writers, directors. And I took him away from NBC. His name was Gary Newman. He ended up as the co-president of Fox with Dana Waldron. But Gary was a great guy, but he said to me, it's no fun anymore. When you were there, we all had fun. We used to, every night, sit in my office at Fox and play hearts. Like 7 o'clock at night. We play for like an hour. We play and we yell and scream at each other, and, and uh, they don't do that anymore. There's no, there's no personal feeling. I mean, you. I'm not going to say you're working for the money, but yeah, you are. You're not. You're not proud to to be doing what you're doing. It's a job. And 
it does seem like it's less fun. I've always, I've never been able to understand. I know that New York was more the land of the three martini lunch than Los Angeles, but still, everyone I know who is trying to get ahead in entertainment nowadays is either sober or strongly considering it. Many of them are are vegan, sometimes for moral grounds, sometimes just because everything is about trying to maximize their mental clarity and getting good rest and everything like that. It seems like there was quite a lot of work hard, play hard in in Los Angeles throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Am I missing something? How did anybody get anything done? Well, we did work hard. We sure played hard, too. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. I, I, this poker game I played in was was really interesting in that uh, uh, they were all key players and uh, in the industry. I was the president of a studio, uh, another president of a studio. I don't think I should name names is in the game. but uh, And then there was a very successful agent who went on to... Uh, co-create the largest entertainment agency in the business. And we there was a great by-play. And we made a rule in the game. No business can be t- talked about because one of the executives who went on to be the head of a studio and the head of a network, your <laughs> listeners I'm sure can yeah. figure out who it is, <laughs> um, he'd start pitches in the meetings, you know, saying, what about this? So we said, no, no entertainment, no business talked about in the game. But we had fun, and we were all competing against each other, every one of us. I'm the president of Warner Brothers. The game was hosted by the late Gary Nardino, who was the president of Paramount Television. And we were all competing against each other, except for those three hours we played poker. When we played poker, we really liked each other, and we had a great time together. But after that game left, I would go after Gary Nardino. Well, I stole... Glenn Larson, who is the creator of Magnum P.I. and uh, Galactic on a number of shows, from Frank Price at Universal, because I said to Glenn, you're only getting net profits. I'll give you gross. And Frank called me and said, how could you have done that to me? We're friends. I said, yes, we are friends, but I want to win. It doesn't happen anymore. They don't play poker together. They yeah. hate each other. And you still played poker with him after that? Yeah, we played poker. Oh, yeah, till Gary died. When Gary Nardino, that game broke up, and now I've gotten another game because I love to play poker. <laughs> this all sounds so fun. I feel like I feel like I was born too late. This is this is the kind of stuff I wanted to get mixed up in. Now here I am on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> 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 well, thank you. We're we're out of time already. There's a whole other book and uh, perhaps a movie to be made about your cousin Belden, who we touched on earlier. You say he invented the all-you-can-eat buffet. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's my uncle who started the hotel was, uh, shall we say, had an accident, which really wasn't an accident, and then Belden uh-huh. took over the hotel, and he did. He invented all-you-can-eat buffet. And so you have him to thank for it. And that's just one of uh, many colorful anecdotes about him oh, in, yes. in the book, uh, and one of many colorful anecdotes in general. I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed uh, getting to thank talk you. to you about it as well. Uh, Harris Cattleman and, uh, and Nick Cattleman with the book, You Can't Fall Off the Floor, and Other Lessons from A Life in Hollywood, available now through Rosetta Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having us.